companies have finally started to get into serious trouble for greenwashing, with lawsuits, fines and even police raids on businesses deemed to be exaggerating their sustainability credentials. But that's happened mainly in the West. What about Asia? This is the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks. South Korea became the first Asian country to say it would dish out fines for companies found guilty of greenwashing in February, although the maximum fine was a paltry 2,300 US dollars, barely more than a round of drinks in a Seoul nightclub. Australia, too, has started to investigate allegations of greenwashing in sustainability reports, and Japan and Singapore have started to tighten the rules for climate disclosure. But the rest of the region has taken a laissez-faire approach to greenwashing, at least so far. Why? Joining the EcoBusiness podcast to talk about greenwashing in Asia is one of the region's leading authorities on the subject, Kim Schumacher, Associate Professor at the University of Kyushu in Japan. Schumacher coined the term competence greenwashing, which refers to people or companies exaggerating their sustainability skills. Welcome to the podcast, Kim. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be on. Yeah, no, it's a real privilege. Um, we've admired your work um, very much around the topic of uh, competency greenwashing, uh, mm. a term that you coined. Um, but before we get onto that, I want to tackle... Uh, the nub of this podcast, Kim, which is uh, trying to answer the question of when will genuine action to tackle greenwashing come to Asia? Of course, I, I will look at it uh, a little bit more from uh, a Japanese context because I am based in Japan. And I also would look at it a little bit more from, an, uh, from a finance or sustainable finance and ESG investing perspective. Uh, because a lot of my research is focused on that. However, uh, yeah, the Korean example is is a good example uh, that is applies more broadly. So um, general claims in terms of products or services, uh, whereas uh, in Japan, for example, the recently the financial uh, the financial regulator has announced that they want to monitor claims by sustainability and what we call ESG, so environment, uh, environmental, social and governance focused funds in more detail. So uh, because a lot of it is uh, focusing on claims and uh, a certain type of terminology usually raises expectation among customers or clients and the general public. So with that being said, if a company or be it a financial institution or so makes claims, then it is extremely important. How do they communicate and what kind of terminology do they use? And what would a reasonable observer, external or third party think when they hear that? So for example, if I have a climate fund uh, and I say that uh, it tries to um, limit greenhouse gas emissions, that I also need to provide evidence or I also need to provide that I have the capacities or resources to properly monitor and uh, disclose any relevant data in order to for, for customers and clients to be able to verify whether any of those uh, initial statements or claims are true. And I think we see that in Japan, mostly limited to uh, the fund market right now, the uh, investment fund market. 
However, there's also considerations uh, with Korea, of course, being the most concrete at this stage, but also in Singapore or in Japan, uh, as well as in Hong Kong, there's uh, talk about could we expand, could we expand, could we extend that to the general economy? So whenever there's a claim being made, should there be any sort of fine? Should there be uh, legal liabilities that are being engaged when you make claims? what falls under this very broad term of greenwashing. So that is probably where I also as a researcher will have still a lot of work cut out for myself is to determine at what point do we actually talk about greenwashing. Yeah, really interesting there that your point that there seems to be a a spectrum of greenwashing um, that sometimes, interestingly, it's actually accidental. Companies aren't meaning to... Um, exaggerate is just the nature of their communications, whereas other companies are deliberately exaggerating their credentials for, I guess, for financial gain. Another thing you mentioned, um, Kim, that I thought was interesting, that uh, markets, Japan, for example, is starting with finance before it moves on to the general economy to tackle greenwash. Um, Perhaps that's, we've seen that in other markets as well, haven't we? Australia is one as well that started with finance and ESG claims, um, and then perhaps will move on to the general economy. Do you think that's sort of a a model that could be replicated in other markets in Asia that have yet to tackle greenwashing? I think... I think probably one of the reasons why finance is being tackled first is sustainable finance and ESG investing has been growing very quickly uh, in a lot of different markets, especially uh, in Europe and in Asia, uh, Asia, uh, including Australia. And the thing with that is for regulators, since it is a pretty novel market, So for them, they still have quite a lot of leeway in terms of trying to manage risks within the market early on, and especially in terms of sustainable finance, because if sustainable finance doesn't exist, it will not kill the regular market as well. So there will still be a normal regular market. And sustainable finance right now is more seen as an add-on still, because in terms of overall volume, of what it represents uh, in terms of assets under management, it is still still relatively small compared to overall, uh, in terms of overall volume. And with that being said, I think it is also kind of a test that because whatever is being promised by the financial market will also have ramifications for the general economy because a lot of the capital that the general economy, that companies do mobilize is through financial markets and and you said a company might not intend to um there's this uh definition by iso the international organization for standards uh, 14 uh, 14100 uh on um on best practice uh, for green uh for green finance and in there there's also a definition for greenwashing which says it's either intentional or unintentional but uh, I do think you need to work really, 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 really hard to uh, engage in unintentional greenwashing, especially at that level that we're talking about. Those are supposed to be professionals. Uh, those are supposed to be corporate leaders. Those are supposed to be lawyers and uh, 
managers with 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 superior knowledge about their institutions, about their organizations, about their corporate structures. So I do think instances where it's actually unintentional are quite rare. So what we're talking about is mostly intentional behavior. Of course, there's different levels to that then in terms of intentionality and in terms of uh, severity of the greenwashing that is, has been engaged in. A good example that is always being put forward is uh, the Volkswagen diesel scandal and where certain expectations and also very misleading claims were being made around what the technology could do and at what price point could it be achieved. And uh, it started with Volkswagen, but then it uh, turned out that um, uh, a large part of the automotive industry was actually engaged in similar behavior of uh, trying to uh, artificially uh, downplay uh, emissions, harmful emissions, particle emissions. So it it was very intentional and it is it is very hard. So I think that is an important part where also moving forward, it will have a legal component because you need to, I think, work harder to engage in unintentional. That would mean you do not really know your company very well. You do not know your supply chains. You do not know your business model. You do not know your customers. You do not know your procurement and sourcing. That that would mean that. And then either way, you didn't properly manage risk. So it's it, it has legal ramifications either way. And that I think is will be moving forward. We will see more of that. The term greenwashing isn't new, but it seems that ever since well, just the last couple of years, in fact, post-COVID, that um, greenwashing has really become, been thrust into the mainstream. Now, changing gears a bit, Kim, but I wanted to ask you about greenwashing and culture. Is calling out greenwashing a cultural issue? Now, the reason I ask this is that it seems that the, all of the legislation, the action, the, the 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 legal action, the backlash against greenwash seems to be a lot louder in the West um, than it is in some markets in Asia. Um, just for example, a colleague said to me recently, we're talking about Petronas, uh, the big oil company there, that it's it's got a, a very, very weak net zero target, but the media there just hasn't called it out at all. There's been very little scrutiny of this um, pretty much untouched, unblemished brand. Um, similarly, in Singapore, where um, I guess the NGO, the civic society uh, community is a bit weaker than it is relatively in the West. Uh, corporates pretty much have free reign to say whatever they like, and there's very little pushback. Um, so, yeah, I just want to ask you, um, is greenwashing, calling out greenwashing, a cultural issue, do you think? I wouldn't necessarily say as much as it is an issue than rather just an, uh, a result of the, the cultural of the of the societal structures that are often prevalent in Asia and also the developmental level of a lot of Asian countries. Uh, but to also refute that partially, uh, as you mentioned, Singapore, but Japan is a very good example. Uh, one of the main examples that I, for example, teach in my course is, is Toyota. So there was a recently uh, in 2022, I think, or 2021, there was a survey and Toyota came out on top of brands in terms of perception, top brands, top ESG brands in terms of perception. 
And then it came out later that Toyota is not really interested in the EV transition, that they want to continue uh, mostly producing just internal combustion engines. Then they were fined a record fine by uh, the United States government for lying about their emissions. So, uh, and then you see their uh, CEO or their ex-CEO wearing the SDG pin 24-7, and that is also now kind of a cultural phenomenon in Japan. There was even a story uh, in the New York Times around it where the SDG pin is omnipresent, and I can only uh, I can only confirm that. If you walk around in Japan, in Tokyo, uh, you you will sit on the uh, on the metro and you will just see across businessmen and businesswomen sitting across uh, wearing SDG pins, uh, and everyone is talking about SDGs. And I would be hard pressed to find at least a handful of those people wearing the SDG pin actually being able to name three concrete SDGs <laughs> at the companies. And the companies that do that, it's it's more like a feel-good issue and kind of saying we care, but it is also to make people numb to some extent because a lot of these companies, uh, for, for, for various reasons, but a lot of them are actually very inambitious when it comes to sustainability targets. And when you look at core ESG metrics and core sustainability metrics, and uh, especially when it comes to supply chains, when it comes to uh, also being ESG leaders in Japan, uh, be it, for example, gender diversity or uh, matters of uh, work conditions, parental leave, things like that. So they're often like landing in, in very like, at the end of all those OECD uh, surveys and, and OECD rankings. And that being said, it's very much so that it is the, the, the harmony, the societal harmony element is very much stands above everything. And everything that would disrupt that, because Japan is... is it's it's probably not the most open society in the world, but it's it's pretty much a democracy. People can vote who they want to vote for, but still, no one is really calling out large companies. And as we saw with the with the Toyota survey, where they came out on top of an ESG ranking in terms of perception of how people feel about the brand, it 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 also goes to show that people do not want to question too much, and it is also this belief that. Everything might not be perfect and they might not be 100% happy with their government. But on the other hand, the hard decisions are kind of being taken care of, be it by the government or by the companies. And therefore, they kind of, and I think that is a general issue with greenwashing, is we, we sort of want to believe in the lie to some extent. Mm -hmm. We kind of want to believe that we can have it all. We kind of want to believe that we can still enjoy our sugary beverages and the bottles are fully biodegradable. We want to believe that we can drive uh, the same way as we did before, but now with zero emissions and that there's no harmful impact. 
we want to be thinking that everything is being recycled. So, and when companies tell us that, it makes us feel good to some extent that we do not really question anything. And the problem with that is in Europe, or not the problem, I would rather say the, the societies there are more confrontational to some extent. It is not as much out on uh, based on harmony. And people question a lot. People wonder, is what I'm buying, is that also what I'm getting? And so therefore it is a very legitimate claim because if I if you tell me when I buy this product, it's climate neutral or it's uh, carbon neutral, then I wanna know to some extent, am I actually getting what I'm paying for? And it, it's a much more skeptical approach. And therefore, in terms of greenwashing, people also see that often these companies sell us things, sometimes even at a premium. And then at the end of the day, we're just paying more for things where we do not really cannot verify whether or not it is actually true. So I do think it is a very cultural there's a cultural divergence, which then also spills over into what we're consuming. And if I'm paying for something, I also want to know that I get what I pay for. Mm. And I think that is a very important element, whereas in Asia, at least also from my own experience in Japan, people kind of still have doubts, but they do not really question it at the end of the day, because in Japan, there's this word shoganai, is like, what can I do about it? And I kind of have to, like, yeah, and there's another word called gamansuru, that means uh, I just need to move on and deal with it. And it it is sort of, I want to believe it, because if it is true, it's great, but I'm also not going to, like, go and, and, and uh, protest or so if it's not true. Who do you think are Asia's most glaring greenwashers and why are they problematic? Most glaring. So I, I talked about one example, which was Toyota. Yeah. Toyota is a very established company, largest car manufacturer in the world. But there's a lot of problems with it because it's one of the few companies um, when the Trump administration tried to uh, repeal uh, emission standards uh, that were based on the California emission standards uh, and wants to replace it with national less ambitious standards. Most companies sided with California. They wanted to keep the more ambitious ones, but Toyota was not one of them. And that were, that should have already been a, coal, a canary in the coal mine because it means that either they do not have what it takes to properly innovate or they're just late to the game and they do not think that they can catch up. And as it turns out, it was the latter. They were late to the game. They didn't really have a large portfolio of EV vehicles, electric vehicles. So they, they rather try to lower the bar instead of becoming more ambitious themselves because internal combustion, selling internal combustion engines worked very well for them. They became the largest car manufacturer in the world. Similar with Volkswagen, they also, rather than uh, either abandoning diesel technology, because diesels were the mo one of the most sold technologies in Europe, 
or making the cars more expensive because that is what it would have taken to make them truly uh, uh, align with what was claimed. They just chose the route to cheat. And Toyota is one because Toyota is extremely present in Asia. If you go to Thailand, if you go to uh, Malaysia, if you go to Indonesia, Toyota is omnipresent. And what that means is this inhibition, it also spills over into these emerging markets. And it also means that it locks in carbon emissions for a very, very, very long time. Because once a car is sold in an emerging economy, people will not just like replace it in five years with an electric vehicle. No, they want to they wanna drive that car for quite a while. So that means the entire infrastructure is locked into fossil fuel consumption for quite a while. And that is where I would say the way they present themselves, Toyota, with SDG pins and everything, and even now ESG and sustainability, uh, net zero is what they always uh, call the uh, one of the companies that represents national pride in most countries car companies are an, a symbol of national pride be it uh ferrari in italy or fiat uh, or be it volkswagen or renault or peugeot in france and it's very hard to go against them because on the one hand you don't want to be too strict with them because you you want to you want to have also that 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 kind of soft power influence that car manufacturers bring to the world and it's a it's an extremely positive representation of your country and it can have a lot of secondary benefits that would be an example another example would be uh, some of the uh the palm oil companies based out of indonesia and malaysia because uh they do represent an, an industry that is extremely harmful. Of course, there's there's a lot of the, the benefits are being presented. Also, the round table on sustainable palm oil uh, is always advanced as a good example for sustainable uh, practices in the industry. But uh, as has also been shown, it's an industry organization that is self-regulated. And we have seen with self-regulated industry organizations, uh, especially in the area of sustainability, they usually do not really promote sustainability at the end of the day. They just promote less unsustainable practices, not sustainable practices. Now, Kim, I want to ask you about how greenwashing is changing. So earlier on this year, there was a report put out by an NGO called Planet Tracker, which drew up six new definitions of greenwash. I'm not sure if you'd seen this. That yeah, yeah, the, the, the green hydra, hydra, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So green crowding, green lighting, green shifting, green labeling, green, green rinsing. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So I want to ask you, what sort of greenwashing um, are we seeing playing out most in Asia at the moment? I do think, and, and these, it's, it's, it's a great report, but what it also does is, I, th I think it just puts a spotlight on variations or like say subcategories of greenwashing yeah. because all of those fall into, ultimately into the greenwashing, into the intentional, in very few cases, unintentional, but most intentional practice of misleading customers and clients about your 
resources and your performance in terms of sustainability and environmental performance. So that is what it ultimately comes down to. And what we see in Asia, and there I have to do a little bit of a self-plug, is uh, the, the competence greenwashing thing where it's the yeah. practice. The, the practice of overselling or inflating your skills or expertise uh, when it comes to environmental knowledge, sustainability-related knowledge or ESG knowledge, be it from companies or from individual practitioners, I think is one now of the things that becomes most prominent because companies now, they get more scrutiny from regulators and they now need to kind of show that they have what it takes to actually implement, for example, uh, their uh, transition towards net zero or their implementation of the SDGs. And it is very revealing that a lot of, be it financial institutions, but also corporates are now suddenly trying to, how do I say, try to, protect themselves against any potential accusations or even legal liabilities by just rebranding a lot of their uh, staff or even existing managers as sustainability savvy or even sustainability experts to say, yeah, we have the resources, we have the capacities. We What we do is based on solid expertise. When then you ignore like a lot of these people have just been relabeled. Um, a good example is a large asset manager uh, based out of Japan, where from one year to another in their sustainability report or their climate-related um, risk report, they just labeled half of their board as sustainability uh, of of uh, uh, or claiming that they have sustainability expertise without providing any. Uh, any explanation whatsoever, where did they come to that conclusion? And what exactly is that expertise? Because sustainability is such a broad term that it is very hard to pinpoint what exactly, where do you fall into that spectrum? And to what extent, what is the level of knowledge you have? Because uh, the word expertise also has a lot of different grades, but expertise usually for me and for any reasonable observer would mean a high level. And so companies and, and individual practitioners, either those who want to uh, enter the market to be hired uh, into companies or those who want to transition or those who feel the heat because their companies themselves are now rapidly shifting towards a more sustainable uh, business model. And they themselves have been mostly just active in, in the previous unsustainable or business as usual uh, company uh, for years, they feel the heat. And if 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 sustainability or environmental or ESG is now what it takes, then they will often choose the quick route because there is no shortcut to genuine subject matter expertise. And that is where what I see right now playing out a lot where, and that is competence greenwashing is also the SDG pin. Because if I see a CEO wearing that, I immediately think, yo, that company and that CEO 
they are aware of it and they have what it takes to uh, render the company more sustainable where in the end it's just a marketing move in most instances. Interesting. Yeah. Now, if you look on the topic of competence greenwash, it seems to me that everyone in sustainability, if you look on LinkedIn, has yeah. that Cambridge University um, sustainability certification yeah. that they wear as a badge. Apparently, that's just a six-week course that you can do, and then suddenly you're a sustainability expert. But um, obviously, yeah. understanding and knowing the, the sustainability uh, uh, deeply understanding yeah. sustainability takes a lot longer than that. Um, yeah, really interesting. So uh, before we finish up, Kim, I want to ask you if you have one prediction for tackling greenwashing in 2023, what would it be? I think one of the, there's two developments that make me hopeful. And I do think they do not really have a lot to do with regulation. Regulation is okay. But I don't think regulation will be strict enough in order to fully take account of the gravity of greenwashing, because whatever happens in the sustainability space, it, it, it is always and everything that, uh, that has been observed since 1970, when the environmental impact assessment uh, concept was established, uh, the, the thing is always, there's always this how do I say this dichotomy between what we know is right and what we want to kind of burden companies with. And I, I use the term burden because that is usually what the industry uses. We're being burdened with environmental laws. We're being burdened with environmental regulations. It, it, it's a cost to us. It takes time. It's, it's unnecessary. It will just make us less competitive. It will drive us to other countries that do not have these pesky bothersome regulations <laughs> and yeah. so regulators will always at the end of the day see it from a point of view that yes we want to promote environmental uh, protection and sustainability but on the other hand we don't want to be too strict as well to basically uh drive companies away or even provoke a recession uh, if ultimately but uh, the thing is, what I see is AI and ESG and big data will, uh, and especially as a researcher who works on that, conceptualizing greenwashing, establishing proper a proper database of what actually could be considered greenwashing, similar to what uh, I did with, with competence greenwashing, establishing an ESG skills matrix. So we're working now on that and then using cases where companies make claims and then test them against that. And so using data, using AI, using natural language processing uh, in order to determine in what instance did greenwashing actually occur. So I do think technological advancement and especially using data in order to identify greenwashing will do much more to provide more clarity and more uh, transparency than what governments could do. There's, of course, there's, there's laudable uh, initiatives. For example, the European Banking Authority recently had a call for greenwashing, for evidence on greenwashing to say what, what, what could even be considered greenwashing. But the problem is 
an, a regulator or a legislator can always be just so precise to to can always capture just a, a certain amount of cases and then other cases would need to go through the courts and it takes time and it just loses a lot of time that we do not necessarily have uh, when we think about climate change or sustainability then what what data can do and the thing is at the end of the day no company wants to be called out as a greenwasher and very important as well, no individual wants to be called out as a competence greenwasher. Mm. And that is where we want to utilize the, the incentive of companies of even wanting to engage in greenwashing against them. And that, I think, is, is a very important step that researchers and, and especially data scientists can do in order to analyze what is the claim, what is the potential gain, and how much data do we actually have to verify that? And is it actually reliable what is being said? And with that, people can then decide for themselves, is that credible what is being communicated or is it extremely incredible? And I think that is the best that we can do because ultimately what that can then do, you can use already existing laws to uh, sue for fraud or sue for misrepresentation. Yeah. So greenwashing laws are more an, a solution to an issue that can already be tackled right now. It's just giving it a name, but you need to establish a clear connection between what is being claimed and the fraud behind it. So, and that is probably the hardest work. And I think that we can only solve that with uh, data science and uh I think that is what uh, makes me hopeful uh, moving forward. Well, exciting to see how that develops um, using data to tackle greenwash. Um, a great place to leave it. Um, Kim Schumacher, thanks so much for joining the Eco Business Podcast. Thank you for having me once again. This podcast was hosted by Eco Business, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media, or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.